Good morning. Merry Christmas. <laughs> yeah, happy pre-New Year. It's uh, coming like a freight train, amen? <laughs> I want to thank God for another opportunity to uh, gather here together with all of us, family. You know, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you're a born again this morning, you are my brother, my sister, my family. And we are family. Amen. I love the holiday times because, you know, you gather with your, with your kids and your family and all those kinds of things. But I also love gathering with you, my born again, God, child of God family. Praise God. I don't know how you celebrated Christmas this year. I hope it was everything you wanted it to be. I know uh, a lot of folks are struggling this year. There's a lot of financial trouble in people's lives and, and things like that. And maybe Christmas this year was just a little bit smaller than what it's been in years past. But you know that's okay. Because all that hustle and bustle and things we create for ourselves, at the end of the day, just, just doesn't really mean a whole lot. Because we're, we're, we've been talking this month about the treasure. Jesus Christ, the treasure. He is the gift of all gifts. Amen. He is the best gift. And the way we worship and love Him is what's really important. And we're here at this precipice of uh, 2009 is about to be over and 2010 is right around the corner. And it's always this time of year when we take stock of our lives. We think about who we are and what the past year has been and uh, what we want the new year to be. Maybe, maybe you make resolutions and you think about some certain areas in your life in 2010 you want to change or improve, and that's good. That's good. We need to do that. I'm sure for all of us, 2009 probably held so many unexpected challenges and uh, some surprising joys. I know I could share with you this morning a variety of stories from our, from our body here of, of uh, success and uh, transformation new babies and new things happening in people's life, great successes and joys. And also we've got some, some stories of loss and, and pain this morning. And all of us probably this whole year have experienced kind of a mixture of joy and pain. And as we look, uh, as we look ahead for 2010, you know, we ask ourselves the question, what can I change in my life? How is my 2010 going to be different than 2009? This morning I'm going to be asking you, as we, we spend our time together, I'm going to be asking you some questions as we go around that issue. Just to start off this morning, maybe I'll just ask, how are you going to be a better disciple of Jesus Christ in 2010 than you've been in 2009? That's the challenge. I'm going to be asking some hard questions. I'm not going to have any answers for you because I want you to answer the questions yourself. But as we go, I want you to be thinking about your life in this past year and the year ahead, how things are going to be different. We're going to be talking specifically about worship today. You know, Pastor Steve, this month has led us through a journey of worship. We've been talking about worship. We talked about how worship is our response to God. A couple weeks ago, he spoke on um, five reasons why we worship. And then if you were here at Christmas Eve at the 7 o'clock service, 
I'm not sure what he said at 5. I wasn't in here at 5 o'clock, but at 7 o'clock, this idea that uh, worship, the word worship in the Greek is really defined as kiss toward. It's that idea of falling on your face and kissing the feet of the one that you're worshiping. It's kind of an interesting picture, isn't it? And then, of course, last week, our worship team, uh, our worship arts ministry took us on a wonderful journey, focusing our hearts and minds on the treasure. How many of you were here last Sunday morning and, and witnessed, experienced that time? That was great, wasn't it? Let's give our worship arts ministry area a hand right now. They did a great job focusing our minds and our hearts on the treasure. And so as we ask ourselves the question, how is 2010 going to be different for me in 2009? I think the, the best way you'll be able to answer that question is when you think about what you're going to be worshiping in 2010. How is your worship going to be in 2010? Because I'm wrapping up this series this week with a word I'm calling worship, living on purpose. Because the reality is when you worship Jesus Christ, truly and honestly, it always translates into an intentional life of devotion, living on purpose. It's going to change how you live. It's going to change how you think. Because worship is a life of devotion. It's our everyday response to His glory. And we're going to see that in Isaiah chapter 6. Today we're going to spend some time in, in Isaiah 6. But before we go to Isaiah, I just want to quickly mention three important concepts around worship that we've talked about at various times this month. And first and foremost, we're all worshipers, and we all worship something. If you uh, take the study notes out of your uh, worship folder there, on one side is Isaiah 6, you can turn it on the back and, and you can take just notes on the, on the blank side on the back, and you write this down. First concept of worship is that we're all worshipers, and we're always worshiping something. We were created by God to worship. Do you realize that? You were created by God to worship. And whether you understand that or not, you are always worshiping something. We worship a variety of things in our life. We can worship God. We can worship our jobs, our families, our possessions, our relationships, our good deeds. We can worship our, our uh, uh, beliefs and our works, our church, our circumstances, our stability, our comfort. You know what often is our highest act of worship, what we worship most of the time, is ourselves. It's easy to get wrapped up in devoting your life to yourself, isn't it? It's a challenge. That's the challenge of our lives and our hearts because we're designed to worship. And it's so easy for us to worship something besides God. Well, this morning I want to ask you a question. What are you going to worship in 2010? Are you going to worship yourself? Or are you going to worship God? 
We're always worshiping something, and we're always worshipers. Second concept is worship is not often what we think it is. Worship is not often what we think it is. You know, we, we tend to equate worship with music and singing, maybe some physical display, clapping our hands, raising our hands, shouting to the top of our lungs. It's easy for us to equate worship to, to those things, but worship is not just music, is it? It's more than that. I love coming together as a, as a body here, as a family, singing praises to God. As a musician, I love music. Music's been a part of my life, all of my life. But what I realize is worship isn't just music. Worship isn't just coming to church. Worship isn't just something we do on Sunday morning for an hour together. Worship isn't our good deeds. Worship is our life. While all of those things may be worship, while music and singing and praising God is worship, and coming together is an act of worship, and doing good deeds are acts of worship in and of themselves, that's not worship. Worship is a life of devotion. It's believing and behaving what you believe. Because if you're worshiping all of the time, you're always worshiping those things you believe in, those things you trust. And I was struck by this thought this week as I was thinking about this concept that worship isn't what we often equate it to be. Is that oftentimes the difference between us as Christians and the other religions of the world, the world of Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism, the difference between Christianity and the religions of the world is in one sense they get this concept in that they understand that their religion is their life. What they do, where they work, how they live, how they relate to one another is all uh, kind of directed by their religion, what they worship. But the challenge for us as Christians is often we approach worship of God as something we do in addition to everything else we do. I go to church to worship. I go to small group to worship. But all of those times in between, we don't really equate that with worship. We don't realize that worship of God should be a life of devotion to Him. I love that concept, that worship is my life. Question number two, how are you going to worship God in 2010? As a part of your life? Or as the focus of your life. And third, most importantly, I think the focus of worship is not how we're worshiping, but it's what we worship. You know, the lasting quality of our worship is the value we place on the object of our worship. Jesus is the treasure. Amen? Amen. He is the treasure. He's the highest gift of all. And He's the object of our worship. True worship, worship that matters, is worshiping the one who matters. I love what John Piper says. He says, if God exists, 
then he's the measure of all things. And what he thinks of all things is the measure of what we should think of all things. If God exists, then he's the measure of all things. He is the highest act of worship. Jesus Christ, the treasure, the gift of all gifts, he's the highest act of worship. He's the greatest, most valuable thing we could possibly worship. So those three concepts, we're always worshipers. We're always worshiping something. Worship is not what we think it is. And the object of our worship is what makes our worship valuable. Um, Steve has been uh, sharing with us the definition of worship. And so I want us to just rehearse it one more time this morning. We'll say it together so that you can remember it and, and take it with you. We've been saying this all month, so let's, let's say it out loud together. Here we go. Worship is our response both personally and collectively to God for who He is, exclamation point, and what He has done, exclamation point, expressed in and by the things we say and the way we live. Amen. Worship is expressed by the things we say and the way we live, and that's going to be driven by what we believe. Do you realize, I don't know if you, if you realize this this morning, but there is a battle for your heart. There's a battle for your heart, even, even while we're here right now. There are things going on in your mind to try to divert your attention from God. There are great things in our culture, that good and bad, that are striving for our devotion, striving for our attention, fighting for our worship. And we all have this same struggle. We all struggle with this, these things in our life that are trying to divert our attention from God and, and take our heart away from Him. Because what we believe is what we're going to behave and it's what we're going to say. Our worship is driven by our heart. You know, uh, one struggle I've been thinking about in my own life, and, um, and I plan to make some changes on this in 2010, but you know, I often personally watch too much TV. I mean, I'm not saying TV is bad, don't get me wrong, there are some bad things on TV, but TV is pretty neutral. But for me, sometimes, when I've had a hard day, had a struggle in the day, I can come home and I can just kind of veg in front of the TV for a while. And hours just disappear. And I've kind of decided in my life for 2010, I'm going to make some changes in that area of my life. Because it draws my attention away from God. It, it draws my focus away from God. It takes my mind and my spirit and my heart and just brings it right down to the gutter. I want to make that change in my life for 2010. And you know, speaking of 2010, I've been reading a lot of sources lately that describe a potential of 2010 being a very challenging year economically in this country. We could all be faced with some serious economic challenges coming in the next 12 months. And, and those challenges and those struggles are going to be trying to take your uh, worship from God and place it on something else. Try to divert your attention from God. We might be faced with questions like, is God truly in control? Is God, does God truly care for me? Does He really love me? 
or not? Is he worthy of my worship or not? There might be a serious battle for your heart this year. I don't know. I don't know if that's true or not. But we can answer those questions correctly if we know Jesus. And I don't mean know about Him. I don't mean know what you think He is. But do you really know Jesus? That's the challenge, isn't it? That's the challenge. Because all of these things in, in our culture, in our society, in our circumstances are all trying to take our eyes off of Him. Because once you've seen God, once you've experienced God, worship of anything else is empty in comparison. I have to, I have to admit something to you. You know, I, I follow and I enjoy and maybe I'll have to say I love the Cleveland Browns. Don't laugh. Don't laugh at me. God uses the Browns to keep me humble. I'll just say that. <laughs> but, you know, but you know, on any given Sunday, this Sunday, in fact, it doesn't really matter if the Cleveland Browns win or lose, does it? It doesn't change my life in one iota. One thing about my life will not change. The heavens will not stop. Nothing will change if they lose today. Or when they lose today, I should say. <laughs> And if by some miracle of God, if the God parts the water, and by some miracle next year the Cleveland Browns go to the Super Bowl and win, go dogs, it won't change my life one bit. Because at the end of the day, they just don't really matter that much. But sometimes it's easy for the Browns to draw my focus away from God. In comparison to God, there is nothing else on this earth that's worth my worship, that's worth our time and devotion other than God. God is important. And I think Isaiah chapter 6 expresses that issue very well. Isaiah 6 is a mountain peak in the book of Isaiah, and clearly it's a pinnacle chapter in the entire Bible. Because it's a chapter that describes Isaiah's face-to-face -face encounter with God. And there's so much in Isaiah 6. We could spend a 10-week sermon series going through Isaiah 6 and never really cover all of the issues. But today, I'm just wanting to spend our time and, and, and place our attention and focus on Isaiah's vision and how it focused his worship on God. So I'm going to read Isaiah 6 to you some verses out of the chapter. You can find the, the chapter on the front side of your sermon notes there. You can follow along as I read. I'm going to read just ten, the first ten verses. Isaiah chapter 6 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. 
And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Here am I. Send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes. Lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. I'll just stop right there. Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord. You know what's an interesting uh, point right here is, do you know who Isaiah saw? In the Gospel of John, John tells us in chapter 12 that Isaiah saw Jesus Christ. This is a pre-incarnate image of Jesus Christ. Think about that. Jesus Christ sitting on the throne of heaven. Have that image in your mind the next time you think of the little baby in the manger. Or the crushed Lamb of God on the cross. Jesus Christ He's on the throne, and I think someday, very soon, He's going to step up from that throne, and He's going to come back in all His glory. Amen? He's going to set things right. He's going to settle accounts. That's Jesus Christ. Isaiah Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord. What an amazing picture that is. I don't think there's words in the English language to describe Fully, the vision of God. God on His throne. I mean, how could we as finite people describe the vision of an infinite God? We, we don't have words. The majesty and the power. Isaiah writes here, but he doesn't come close. He doesn't even begin to describe the, the majesty and the power and the glory and the awesome beauty of God. We can't even begin to understand the terror that was in Isaiah's heart. I mean, think about it. Any time in the Bible, throughout the entire Bible, when anyone came in contact with the glory of God, they fell on their face as dead. The terror of coming into the presence of a, of a holy God. I mean, we can't begin to understand that. I mean, God sits on His throne and the angels that are in His close proximity are constantly on fire because of His holiness. The power and the extreme light. I mean, what are you going to do this week? What would you do this week if in your quiet time you're reading the Word or you're praying and God suddenly opens up the room and you're looking into the throne room of God? I mean, think about that. Isaiah was wrecked by his vision. He was never the same after he saw God. And think what that would do for you. You'd never be the same. 
You'd never talk the same. You'd never walk the same. You'd never act the same. You'd, you would, your life would be totally different. You wouldn't believe the same things you believe right now. If you saw the vision of God on His throne, if you survived it, it'd sure change your life. It would wreck you forever. Isaiah was never the same after this. There was no way around it. And I think the first 11 verses in this chapter, or first 11 words in this chapter are very important. He writes, "In In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon His throne. In the year the king died, I saw the Lord. Now why did Isaiah even bring up King Uzziah's name in the same vision as God. I mean, he'd just seen God. What is so important about King Uzziah here in this verse? I mean, obviously, I think this man was very important and special to Isaiah. But I think there's an important key here about King Uzziah. King Uzziah is important because it says something about Isaiah and about Judah. We can read of the story, the history of King Uzziah in 2 Chronicles chapter 26 and in 2 Kings chapter 15. It will tell you all about King Uzziah. He was a very significant king in Judah. And I want to kind of put this in in, in context for us. So I want to take just a minute to step back from these verses and give you some historical background regarding King Uzziah. Because I think it's very important we understand who he is. If you remember, when God brought Israel out of Egypt, he was their king, right? They were a theocracy. They were ruled by God. He, he, he led them through some human agents, but God was truly their king. And after they settled in Canaan, they started looking around them and they decided, you know what? We really want to have a king like all of these other nations around us. We want to be like these other people. So we want a human king. And God sadly gave in to their request and He allowed them to have a king. And so He selected King Saul as the first king of Israel. And and Saul reigned for 40 years. And then David succeeded him and reigned for 40 years. And then Solomon, David's son, reigned for 40 years. He succeeded David. And when Solomon died, there was a civil war in the land. There was this fight over who was going to take the throne. And the nation, the kingdom of Israel divided into two peoples. Israel in the north was the northern kingdom and they had their own line of kings. And Judah was the southern kingdom and they had their own line of kings. And it was that way for approximately 325 years. Now the challenge and the problem with human leadership that we experience, I think, in our own world, but especially in this time of Israel and the kings, was the heart of the human king usually becomes the heart of the people. The people usually follow their king. And so in Israel, it was a just a downward spiral from that moment because all of the kings in Israel were idol worshipers and each successive king grew more and more evil. And in Judah, they were just a little bit better. They would have a good king, maybe followed by a Bad king, maybe followed by another good king or two, then another bad king. But the problem with Judah was their evil kings grew progressively worse and worse. And then their good kings over time became more compliant to idol worship. 
and allowed idol worship to exist. And so now we come to Uzziah, the king of Judah. Uzziah became a king when he was 16 years old, and he reigned for 52 years in Judah, a long time, a long era of stability in the uh, kingdom of Judah. And from Judah's perspective, Uzziah was a very good king. But there was pride and self-sufficiency in his heart that ultimately brought down his reign, and he actually died because of that pride and self-sufficiency. But I think 2 Kings chapter 15 gives us two verses, a description of Uzziah, that are very telling. It says, He did, speaking of Uzziah, He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and made offerings in the high places. And I think this is a sad commentary on the reign of this relatively successful king. From Judah's perspective, Uzziah was a great king. Because under his leadership, Judah amassed great wealth. They rebuilt a strong military. They developed new advanced weapons of mass destruction. They created innovative irrigation systems and had plentiful harvests. They expanded their territory and exacted tribute from smaller kingdoms around them. The Egyptians and the Ammonites and the Philistines and the Arabs, they were the Arabians, they were all fearful of Judah and they were fearful of King Uzziah. The people put their faith and their hope and their trust in Uzziah and they saw glory in their kingdom. But God saw something else. Judah looked wonderful on the outside, but in their their hearts there was corruption that was corroding the foundations of their nation. And so with their good works, they were observing God in the temple. They were bringing the sacrifices. They were observing the holy days and the holidays and the feasts. They were bringing their tithes. From the outside, they looked like they were really worshiping God. But 2 Kings 15 says, Uzziah did not take down the high places. Uzziah didn't destroy the high places, those places where they were practicing idol worship in the high mountains and the hills all over the land. Judah was tolerating idol worship alongside worship of God in the temple. They didn't believe that God was the one true God. They were proud of their own success. They were proud of their own plenty, their military power, their stability, 52 years of stability. They were so proud of that and their status. And they were proud of their great king Uzziah. They had great hopes and dreams in Uzziah. They saw him as their source of stability. And I think maybe, maybe Isaiah was putting some trust in that too. But now, now this great king, this leader, this dream builder, he was dead. Isaiah says, in the year King Uzziah died. Isaiah was dismayed. Judah was, was dismayed. What do we do now? How are we going to get through? Our king is dead. We're going to be destroyed by all these other nations. What happens to us? What do I do now that what I'm trusting in is gone? I think for us sometimes we struggle with those same kinds of things, don't you? Sometimes in our own lives we have our own King Uzziahs that we're trusting in. We're trusting in that King Uzziah rather than God. Maybe it's your career. Maybe it's your 
neighborhood. Maybe it's your family. Maybe it's your self-sufficiency. Whatever it is, sometimes we place other things on the throne other than God. They were trusting in King Uzziah, but King Uzziah was dead. They were out of hope. I think maybe if, if we all really thought about it, if I asked you a question and had you write it down, I think maybe all of us, if we gave some time to it, could all create our own little list of Uzziahs. Those things that pull our heart from God and, and, and we place our trust in at times more than we place our trust in God. Isaiah, along with the people of Judah, were dismayed because the throne was empty. But then God, Isaiah says, in the year King Uzziah died, but then God pulled back the curtain. And Isaiah said, I saw the Lord. Yes. Oh, yes. King Uzziah's throne is empty, but God is still on the throne. Amen. God is still on the throne. Immediately, Isaiah is faced with a dilemma. He's, he's, he's faced with the question of, who do you trust? Who are you trusting, Isaiah? Who are you putting your faith and confidence in? Who are you worshiping? What are you going to do with this question? Uzziah's throne is empty, but God is on the throne. And I think Isaiah, at that moment, I think he was faced with some clear issues in his life. And I think he had some... He came to some clear, crystal clear focus about the situation. There's a variety of things we could talk about, but I just want to give you three things this morning that I think immediately came to Isaiah's mind. First, there was no denying that God was in control. There is a throne over all the universe, and Jesus Christ sits on that throne. His is life and peace and power, and He is the source of all of our hope and everything that exists, life emanates from Him. Jesus Christ sits on the throne. God is never at His wit's end. Do you realize that? God's never sitting on the throne wringing His hands. Oh no, what are we going to do? The universe is not unraveling this morning. I don't care what circumstances are going on in your life. 2010 may be a very challenging year for us. You might be going through some troubles right now. But you know what? God's in control. God's on the throne. Isaiah said, I saw the Lord. He's got it all under control. No matter what's going on, the universe is not unraveling. It's in God's hands. Psalm 46.10, he says, Be still and know that I am God. If there's anything I would want you to see this morning, I want you to see God on His throne. We have this, sometimes we get this idea of who God is. I think we construct these little gods in our minds. We think God thinks like us and acts like us. You know, sometimes, I have to admit to you, sometimes I have a, a clawed-sized God. You know, I think God kind of looks like me and, and acts like He's real handsome like me, you know. And He acts like me. He's just a bigger me. He just knows more stuff and has a lot more power. When I come into a situation and I'm all worried about it, I think maybe that's the way God's thinking about it too. But you know what? God isn't like us at all, is He? He's on the throne. He's not like us at all. He is infinite and He has the, the whole universe held together in His hands. Sometimes He does things in my life I don't understand. But it's okay because He's God. He knows what He's doing. 
Do you have a big view of God this morning? Do you have a clod-sized God? I hope not. You're in trouble if you do. Because I wouldn't make a very good God. And I hope you don't have a you-sized God either. I hope your God this morning is the God who sits on the throne. Isaiah comes before God and he sees him and he says, Oh my goodness. That's God. Number two, I think Isaiah clearly understood his condition. The closer we come to God, the closer we're in proximity with God, the more we understand his holiness, the more we understand our depravity and our hopeless condition. In his perfection, he is perfection, he is goodness. And when I come in contact with that, I realize my own unworthiness. In verse 3, the angels here are screaming, Holy, holy, holy. Do you know that in the, in the Bible and in Jewish culture, the idea of, of repeating something twice was very significant. When something is repeated twice, it, it means a special emphasis and significance. You remember in the Gospels, Jesus would say, Verily, verily, I say unto you. Or truly, truly. Or more correctly, Amen, Amen, I say unto you. And when he says that, he's saying, listen guys, what I'm telling you right now, it's true. It is true and you can believe it. And I really mean what I'm saying. When it's repeated twice, it has a certain importance. But when something is repeated three times, it has extreme value and importance. You can't change that statement. It is true beyond the shadow of a doubt. The angels are screaming, holy, holy, holy. Do you realize that this is the only attribute of God in the entire Bible that's repeated three times? Nowhere in the Bible does it say God is love, love, love. Or God is judgment, judgment, judgment. God is wrath, wrath, wrath. No. But it says He's holy, holy, Holy. You know what that means? He's holy. <laughs> yeah. If we don't get that, uh, we're just not paying attention, are we? He's holy. So when Isaiah sees God in, in, in this, in this uh, uh, vision, in verse 5, he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. The most important tool of a prophet was his mouth, Right? by which he proclaimed the prophecy of God as the oracle of God. And we can read in chapters 1 through 5, Isaiah proclaiming these prophecies. He's saying these words and he comes to this place and he realizes that even the most holy tool he thought he had, his mouth, is sinful. He says, my lips are unclean. Even what I'm saying, I'm not worthy, God. You're worthy and you're high and you're holy and I am undone and we are undone. And that's the beauty of the gospel. That's the beauty of the gospel. This treasure, Jesus Christ coming in flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. Because you and I, with all of our goodness, Isaiah in chapter 64 says, all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. If I take all of my goodness and all of my holiness and all of my self-sufficiency and all of what I think I am and I hold it up to God and His light shines on that, it reveals it for what it really is, just garbage. I have no hope apart from what He has done. The value of the gospel is God has done for me what I couldn't do for myself. 
I can't get to God. You can't get to God in your own power and in your own strength. There's nothing you can do. But guess what? The good news, God came to you. God came to you. And He cleanses you. And He makes you worthy. The power of the gospel. Isaiah is standing before God and he says, I saw the Lord. God, he understood that God was in control. He understood that in his own personal condition and the condition of the people were unworthiness. And finally, he realized that he and the people of Judah had been worshiping a false god. They'd been worshiping a false god. They thought they knew God. They thought they knew who God was. They thought they were doing His will. They thought they were worshiping Him with all their, their little acts of religion and all the things they were doing. They know God. They were doing what He asked. I mean, come on. We've got all this wealth. We've got all this prosperity. We're expanding our kingdom. Nations around fear us. King Uzziah is sitting on the throne. Everything is good. We must be doing something right. We must be worshiping God, right? But you know what? The God they were worshiping was the God of Uzziah, wasn't it? The God of their own self-sufficiency, the God of their own wealth, the God of their own power, their God of their own abilities. And often it's so easy for us to get wrapped up in ourselves and in our own abilities. If you see God, if you encounter God this morning or this week, you're going to understand that God's in control. You're going to understand that you are unworthy apart from Him. And you're going to understand that there is no other God other than the true God. Judah and Isaiah, they were, they were worshiping the God of their making. Their God, the stability. And what does Isaiah say there in verse 5? He says, woe is me. In Hebrew, that word woe is Oy, it's a cry of grief and extreme pain. And in fact, it's often used as a curse. What Isaiah is saying is, cursed is me. I am cursed. I've been worshiping the wrong God. We are cursed. We are hopeless. We have no hope. Isaiah realized that God was his only hope. We can't put our faith in our personal image of God or in our own self-sufficiency or our good works. Judah had their own clawed-sized God, their King Uzziah. But King Uzziah, for all his goodness and all his ability, was just another sinful man, unable to provide true life and hope and happiness. So here we are. Isaiah is, Isaiah is standing before God. God pulls back the curtain and he says, I saw the Lord. And he immediately understands God's in control. He immediately understands his hopeless condition. And he immediately understands he's been worshiping a God of his own making. So what's Isaiah's response to this whole encounter? This moment wrecks him for the rest of his life. And you know what his response is? Worship. Worship. A life of true Devotion, a life dedicated to God. His life changed forever. God says, 
the, the angel comes to Isaiah and touches his lips with the coal and he's clean, he's made clean, and he understands the, the, the reality of God. And God says, who's going to go for us? Who's going to go deliver a message of, del- of judgment? Judah's not going to listen to it. They're not going to believe it. They're not going to hear it. They're not going to accept it. But who's going to go deliver it? Isaiah says, God, I, I got other things to do. You know, I got this life. I got this prophecy business I'm doing over here. I'm saying some good stuff. I don't really want to deliver a message nobody's going to hear. Are you sure you know what you're talking about, God? You know, I've got, I've got stuff happening. Is that what God so what Isaiah says to God, he says, send me. I'll do it. I'll do it. God, I'll go where you want me to go. I'll do what you want me to do. I'll be what you want me to be. I'll say whatever it is you want me to say. It might not work out the way I think it works out. It might not, I might not do it the way you would do it, God. They might not listen to me. I would tell them maybe some things they might listen to, but, but you want to tell them something else. Okay. Let's do that. Whatever it is you want from me, God, I'll do it. Isaiah's response to his encounter with God was worship. He could do nothing else. He could do nothing else. So just to conclude our time together here, let's think about how this relates to us. God is God. He is in total control. If you encounter God this week, if you have a God moment this week, you'll realize God's in control. 2010, I don't know what's going to happen. I have no idea. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but I know who holds tomorrow. And it's God. God is in control. God's in control of your life, in your circumstances, everything about you. He sits on the throne of the universe. There is a throne And God's sitting on it. If you have an encounter with God this week in your your quiet time and you come in contact with Him, you will never be the same. You'll never be the same. And when you experience God, your only response is worship. Worship. Worship is what we believe. It's how we behave. It's living on purpose and living for a purpose. It's living a life of devotion. And compared to God, nothing else we have in our lives really matters. It's really worthy in comparison to God. Nothing else is worth worship than God. Have you had a God encounter lately in your life so that your heart burns and you hunger and thirst after righteousness and you pour over His Word because you want to know who He is and you want to know who you are in Him? I've been praying for you this week. I've been praying that this week, when we leave here, that this coming week that you would have a God encounter. In fact, that's what I want to challenge you with. 2010 is right around the corner. We've got about four days. I want to challenge you this week to take some time, get your Bible, Get on your knees before God and spend some time alone with God and have a God encounter. Claude, my schedule's full. I know. Make some time for God. Claude, it's the holidays and we've got family in. I know. Make some time for God. 
I want to challenge you to have a God encounter. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ. You don't have a relationship with Him. Well, it's time that you get to know Him. Maybe you're a follower of Jesus Christ this morning and you've been a follower for many years. Well, maybe it's time to have a fresh encounter with the one who loves you and cares for you the most. Maybe you're new in your relationship with God. Well, maybe it's time for you to figure out what you committed to. But get your, get your Bible and get on your knees and have an encounter with God. Because Isaiah said, I saw the Lord. And it translated into worship. His life was never the same. And I want you to see the Lord. God in His throne, high and lifted up. And may you never be the same. May you never be the same. I'm going to pray here in a minute. And then the worship team is going to come. And just a little piece of business, as I pray, if you are getting baptized this morning, this would be a great time to go upstairs while I'm praying and get ready to be baptized. But after I pray, I've asked the worship team to lead us in a song of commitment. There's some words that we're going to be singing. As for me and my house, a rousing song of commitment. We're going to stand together and we'll worship God together in song. And I want you to think about it as making a commitment for the coming year. In 2010, are you going to live on purpose? Are you going to worship God with a life of devotion? Is your life going to be a life of purpose? Are you going to live purposely? I hope so. Isaiah said, I saw the Lord and it wrecked him forever. May you see the Lord this week. May you encounter God this week and be forever changed. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I just thank you for your word. I thank you that you are God and that you are in control and that you know everything about our lives. There's nothing about our lives you don't know. There's nothing about us you don't know. And Lord, I thank you for this word. I thank you for this vision that Isaiah experienced and shared with us. Lord, this vision where he saw you, he came into your presence and he was forever changed and he became a true worshiper of you. Lord, may we this week come in contact with you. May we come to know you in a fresh and new way. May we have a God encounter this week such that it changes our lives and we're never the same. We give you all the glory and the honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.